This is Book Two, Chapter Five of Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by John Greenman. Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc by Mark Twain. Book Two, Chapter Five. We pierce the last ambuscades. We rested and otherwise refreshed ourselves two or three hours at Gian but by that time the news was abroad that the young girl commissioned of God to deliver France was come. Wherefore such a press of people flocked to our quarters to get sight of her that it seemed best to seek a quieter place, so we pushed on and halted at a small village called Fierbois. We were now within six leagues of the king, who was at the castle of Chinon. Joan dictated a letter to him at once, and I wrote it. In it she said she had come a hundred and fifty leagues to bring him good news, and begged the privilege of delivering it in person. She added that, although she had never seen him, she would know him in any disguise, and would point him out. The two knights rode away at once with the letter. The troop slept all the afternoon, and after supper we felt pretty fresh and fine, especially our little group of young Domremiens. We had the comfortable tap-room of the village inn to ourselves, and for the first time in ten unspeakably long days were exempt from bodings and terrors and hardships and fatiguing labors. The paladin was suddenly become his ancient self again, and was swaggering up and down, a very monument of self-complacency. Noel Regesson said, "'I think it is wonderful the way he has brought us through.' "'Who?' asked Jean. "'Why, the paladin.' The paladin seemed not to hear. "'What had he to do with it?' asked Pierre d'Arc. "'Everything. It was nothing but Joan's confidence in his discretion that enabled her to keep up her heart. She could depend on us and on herself for valor. But discretion is the winning thing in war, after all. Discretion is the rarest and loftiest of qualities, and he has got more of it than any other man in France, more of it, perhaps, than any other sixty men in France.' "'Now you are getting ready to make a fool of yourself, Noel Rengesson,' said the paladin, "'and you want to coil some of that long tongue of yours around your neck and stick the end of it in your ear. Then you'll be the less likely to get into trouble.' "'I didn't know he had more discretion than other people,' said Pierre, "'for discretion argues brains, and he hasn't any more brains than the rest of us, in my opinion.' "'No, you are wrong there. Discretion hasn't anything to do with brains.' Brains are an obstruction to it, for it does not reason, it feels. Perfect discretion means absence of brains. Discretion is a quality of the heart, solely a quality of the heart. It acts upon us through feeling. We know this, because if it were an intellectual quality, it would only perceive a danger, for instance, where a danger exists, whereas— "'Hear him twaddle, the damned idiot,' muttered the paladin. Whereas it being purely a quality of the heart, and proceeding by feeling, not reason, its reach is correspondingly wider and sublimer, enabling it to perceive and avoid dangers that haven't any existence at all, as, for instance, that night in the fog when the paladin took his horse's ears for hostile lances, and got off and climbed a tree. It's a lie, a lie without shadow of foundation, and I call upon you all to beware you give credence to the malicious inventions of this ramshackle slander-mill that has been doing its best to destroy my character for years, and will grind up your own reputations for you next. I got off to tighten my saddle-girth. I wish I may die in my tracks if it isn't so, and whoever wants to believe it can, and whoever don't, can let it alone. 
there that is the way with him you see he never can discuss a theme temperately but always flies off the handle and becomes disagreeable and you notice his defect of memory he remembers getting off his horse and forgets all the rest even the tree but that is natural he would remember getting off the horse because he was so used to doing it he always did it when there was an alarm and the clash of arms at the front why did he choose that time for it asked jean i don't know to tighten up his girth he thinks to climb a tree i think i saw him climb nine trees in a single night you saw nothing of the kind a person that can lie like that deserves no one's respect i ask you all to answer me do you believe what this reptile has said all seemed embarrassed and only pierre replied he said hesitatingly i-well i hardly know what to say it is a delicate situation it seems offensive to me to refuse to believe a person when he makes so direct a statement and yet i am obliged to say rude as it may appear that i am not able to believe the whole of it no i am not able to believe that you climbed nine trees there cried the paladin now what do you think of yourself noel regisson how many do you believe i climbed pierre only eight the laughter that followed inflamed the paladin's anger to white heat and he said i bide my time i bide my time i will reckon with you all i promise you that don't get him started noel pleaded he is a perfect lion when he gets started i saw enough to teach me that after the third skirmish after it was over i saw him come out of the bushes and attack a dead man single-handed it is another lie and i give you fair warning that you are going too far you will see me attack a live one if you are not careful meaning me of course this wounds me more than any number of injurious and unkind speeches could do in gratitude to one's benefactor benefactor what do i owe you i should like to know you owe me your life i stood between the trees and the foe and kept hundreds and thousands of the enemy at bay when they were thirsting for your blood and i did not do it to display my daring i did it because i loved you and could not live without you there you have said enough i will not stay here to listen to these infamies i can endure your lies but not your love keep that corruption for somebody with a stronger stomach than mine and i want to say this before i go that you people's small performances might appear the better and win you the more glory i hid my own deeds through all the march i went always to the front where the fighting was thickest to be remote from you in order that you might not see and be discouraged by the things i did to the enemy it was my purpose to keep this a secret in my own breast but you force me to reveal it if you ask for my witnesses yonder they lie on the road we have come i found that road mud i paved it with corpses i found that country sterile i fertilized it with blood time and again i was urged to go to the rear because the command could not proceed on account of my dead and yet you you miscreant accuse me of climbing trees <laughs> he strode off with a lofty air for the recital of his imaginary deeds had already set him up again and made him feel good next day we mounted and faced toward chinon orleans was at our back now and close by lying in the strangling grip of the english soon please god we would face about and go to their relief from gian the news had spread to orleans that the peasant maid of vaucouleurs was on her way divinely commissioned to raise the siege the news made a great excitement and raised a great hope the first breath of hope those poor souls had breathed in five months 
they sent commissioners at once to the king to beg him to consider this matter and not throw this help lightly away these commissioners were already at chinon by this time when we were half-way to chinon we happened upon yet one more squad of enemies they burst suddenly out of the woods and in considerable force too but we were not the apprentices we were ten or twelve days before no we were seasoned to this kind of adventure now our hearts did not jump into our throats and our weapons trembled in our hands we had learned to be always in battle array always alert and always ready to deal with any emergency that might turn up we were no more dismayed by the sight of those people than our commander was before they could form joan had delivered the order forward and we were down upon them with a rush they stood no chance they turned tail and scattered we ploughing through them as if they had been men of straw that was our last ambuscade and it was probably laid for us by that treacherous rascal the king's own minister and favorite de la tremouille we housed ourselves in an inn and soon the town came flocking to get a glimpse of the maid ah the tedious king and his tedious people our two good knights came presently their patience well wearied and reported they and we reverently stood as becomes persons who are in the presence of kings and the superiors of kings until joan troubled by this mark of homage and respect and not content with it nor yet used to it although we had not permitted ourselves to do otherwise since the day she prophesied that wretched traitor's death and he was straightway drowned thus confirming many previous signs that she was indeed an ambassador commissioned of god commanded us to sit then the sieur de metz said to joan the king has got the letter but they will not let us have speech with him who is it that forbids none forbids but there be three or four that are nearest his person schemers and traitors every one that put obstructions in the way and seek all ways by lies and pretexts to make delay chiefest of these are georges de la tremouille and that plotting fox the archbishop of rheims while they keep the king idle and in bondage to his sports and follies they are great and their importance grows whereas if ever he assert himself and rise and strike for crown and country like a man their reign is done so they but thrive they care not if the crown go to destruction and the king with it you have spoken with others besides these not of the court no the court are the meek slaves of those reptiles and watch their mouths and their actions acting as they act thinking as they think saying as they say wherefore they are cold to us and turn aside and go another way when we appear but we have spoken with the commissioners from orleans they said with heat it is a marvel that any man in such desperate case as is the king can moon around in this torpid way and see his all go to ruin without lifting a finger to stay the disaster what a most strange spectacle it is here he is shut up in this wee corner of the realm like a rat in a trap his royal shelter this huge gloomy tomb of a castle with wormy rags for upholstery and crippled furniture for use a very house of desolation in his treasure forty francs and not a farthing more god be witness no army nor any shadow of one and by contrast with his hungry poverty you behold this crownless pauper and his shoals of fools and favorites tricked out in the gaudiest silks and velvets you shall find in any court in christendom and look you he knows that when our city falls as fall it surely will except succor come swiftly france falls he knows that when that day comes he will be an outlaw and a fugitive 
and that behind him the English flag will float unchallenged over every acre of his great heritage. He knows these things. He knows that our faithful city is fighting all solitary and alone against disease, starvation, and the sword to stay this awful calamity, yet he will not strike one blow to save her. He will not hear our prayers, he will not even look upon our faces. That is what the commissioners said, and they are in despair. Jones said gently, It is a pity, but they must not despair. The Dauphin will hear them presently. Tell them so. She almost always called the king the Dauphin. To her mind he was not king yet, not being crowned. We will tell them so, and it will content them, for they believe you come from God. The archbishop and his confederate have for backer that veteran soldier Raoul de Gaucourt, Grand Master of the Palace, a worthy man, but simply a soldier, with no head for any great matter. He cannot make out to see how a country girl, ignorant of war, can take a sword in her small hand and win victories where the trained generals of France have looked for defeats only for fifty years, and always found them. And so he lifts his frosty mustache and scoffs. When God fights it is but small matter whether the hand that bears his sword is big or little. He will perceive this in time. Is there none in that castle of Chinon who favors us? Yes, the king's mother-in-law, Yolande, queen of Sicily, who is wise and good. She spoke with the Sieur Bertrand. She favors us, and she hates those others, the king's beguilers, said Bertrand. She was full of interest and asked a thousand questions, all of which I answered according to my ability. Then she sat thinking over these replies until I thought she was lost in a dream and would wake no more. But it was not so. At last she said slowly, and as if she were talking to herself, A child of seventeen, a girl, country-bred, untaught, ignorant of war, the use of arms, and the conduct of battles, modest, gentle, shrinking, yet throws away her shepherd's crook and clothes herself in steel, and fights her way through a hundred and fifty leagues of fear, and comes, she to whom a king must be a dread and awful presence, and will stand up before such an one, and say, Be not afraid, God has sent me to save you. Ah, whence could come a courage and conviction so sublime as this, but from very God himself? She was silent again a while, thinking and making up her mind, and then she said, And whether she comes of God or no, there is that in her heart that raises her above men, high above all men that breathe in France to-day. For in her is that mysterious something that puts her heart into soldiers, and turns mobs of cowards into armies of fighters that forget what fear is when they are in that presence, fighters who go into battle with joy in their eyes and songs on their lips, and sweep over the field like a storm. That is the spirit that can save France, and that alone, come it whence it may, it is in her. I do truly believe, for what else could have borne up that child on that great march, and made her despise its dangers and fatigues? The king must see her face to face, and shall. She dismissed me with those good words, and I know her promise will be kept. They will delay her all they can, those animals, but she will not fail in the end. Would she were king, said the other knight fervently, for there is little hope that the king himself can be stirred out of his lethargy. He is wholly without hope, and is only thinking of throwing away everything and flying to some foreign land. 
the commissioners say there is a spell upon him that makes him hopeless yes and that it is shut up in a mystery which they cannot fathom i know the mystery said joan with quiet confidence i know it and he knows it but no other but god when i see him i will tell him a secret that will drive away his trouble then he will hold up his head again i was miserable with curiosity to know what it was that she would tell him but she did not say and i did not expect she would she was but a child it is true but she was not a chatterer to tell great matters and make herself important to little people no she was reserved and kept things to herself as the truly great always do the next day queen yolande got one victory over the king's keepers for in spite of their protestations and obstructions she procured an audience for our two knights and they made the most they could out of their opportunity they told the king what a spotless and beautiful character joan was and how great and noble a spirit animated her and they implored him to trust in her believe in her and have faith that she was sent to save france they begged him to consent to see her he was strongly moved to do this and promised that he would not drop the matter out of his mind but would consult with his counsel about it this began to look encouraging two hours later there was a great stir below and the innkeeper came flying up to say a commission of illustrious ecclesiastics was come from the king from the king his very self understand think of this vast honor to his humble little hostelry and he was so overcome with the glory of it that he could hardly find breath enough in his excited body to put the facts into words they were come from the king to speak with the maid of vaucouleurs then he flew downstairs and presently appeared again backing into the room and bowing to the ground with every step in front of four imposing and austere bishops and their train of servants joan rose and we all stood the bishops took seats and for a while no word was said for it was their prerogative to speak first and they were so astonished to see what a child it was that was making such a noise in the world and degrading personages of their dignity to the base function of ambassadors to her in her plebeian tavern that they could not find any words to say at first then presently their spokesman told joan they were aware that she had a message for the king wherefore she was now commanded to put it into words briefly and without waste of time or embroideries of speech as for me i could hardly contain my joy our message was to reach the king at last and there was the same joy and pride and exultation in the faces of our knights too and in those of joan's brothers and i knew that they were all praying as i was at the awe which we felt in the presence of these great dignitaries and which would have tied our tongues and locked our jaws would not affect her in the like degree but that she would be enabled to word her message well and with little stumbling and so make a favorable impression here where it would be so valuable and so important ah dear how little we were expecting what happened then we were aghast to hear her say what she said she was standing in a reverent attitude with her head down and her hands clasped in front of her for she was always reverent toward the consecrated servants of god when the spokesman had finished she raised her head and set her calm eye on those faces not any more disturbed by their state and grandeur than a princess would have been and said with all her ordinary simplicity and modesty of voice and manner ye will forgive me reverend sirs but i have no message save for the king's ear alone 
Those surprised men were dumb for a moment, and their faces flushed darkly. Then the spokesman said, Hark ye, do you fling the king's command in his face and refuse to deliver this message of yours to his servants appointed to receive it? God has appointed me to receive it, and another's commandment may not take precedence of that. I pray you let me have speech for his grace the Dauphin. Forbear this folly and come at your message. Deliver it and waste no more time about it. You err indeed, most reverend fathers in God, and it is not well. I am not come hither to talk, but to deliver Orléans, and lead the Dauphin to his good city of Reims, and set the crown upon his head. Is that the message you send to the king? But Joan only said, in the simple fashion which was her wont, Ye will pardon me for reminding you again, but I have no message to send to any one. The king's messengers rose in deep anger and swept out of the place without further words, we and Joan kneeling as they passed. Our countenances were vacant, our hearts full of a sense of disaster. Our precious opportunity was thrown away. We could not understand Joan's conduct, she who had been so wise until this fatal hour. At last the Sieur Bertrand found courage to ask her why she had let this great chance to get her message to the king go by. "'Who sent them here?' she asked. "'The king.' "'Who moved the king to send them?' She waited for an answer. None came, for we began to see what was in her mind. So she answered herself. "'The Dauphin's council moved him to it. Are they enemies to me and to the Dauphin's wheel, or are they friends?' "'Enemies,' answered the Sieur Bertrand. "'If one would have a message go sound and ungarbled, does one choose traitors and tricksters to send it by?' I saw that we had been fools, and she wise. They saw it, too, so none found anything to say. Then she went on. They had but small wit that contrived this trap. They thought to get my message and seem to deliver it straight, yet deftly twist it from its purpose. You know that one part of my message is but this, to move the Dauphin by argument and reasonings to give me men-at-arms and send me to the siege. If an enemy carried these in the right words, the exact words, and no word missing, yet left out the persuasions of gesture and supplicating tone, and beseeching looks that inform the words and make them live, where were the value of that argument? Whom could it convince? Be patient. The Dauphin will hear me presently. Have no fear. The Sieur de Metz nodded his head several times and muttered as to himself, She was right and wise, and we are but dull fools when all is said. It was just my thought. I could have said it myself, and indeed it was the thought of all there present. A sort of awe crept over us, to think how that untaught girl, taken suddenly and unprepared, was yet able to penetrate the cunning devices of a king's trained advisers and defeat them. Marveling over this, and astonished at it, we fell silent and spoke no more. We had come to know that she was great in courage, fortitude, endurance, patience, conviction, fidelity to all duties, in all things, indeed, that make a good and trusty soldier and perfect him for his post. Now we were beginning to feel that maybe there were greatnesses in her brain that were even greater than these great qualities of the heart. It set us thinking. What Joan did that day bore fruit the very day after. The king was obliged to respect the spirit of a young girl who could hold her own and stand her ground like that, and he asserted himself sufficiently to put his respect into an act instead of into polite and empty words. 
he moved joan out of that poor inn and housed her with us her servants in the castle of cordray personally confiding her to the care of madame de bellier wife of old raoul de gaucourt master of the palace of course this royal attention had an immediate result all the great lords and ladies of the court began to flock there to see and listen to the wonderful girl soldier that all the world was talking about and who had answered the king's mandate with a bland refusal to obey joan charmed them every one with her sweetness and simplicity and unconscious eloquence and all the best and capablest among them recognized that there was an indefinable something about her that testified that she was not made of common clay that she was built on a grander plan than the mass of mankind and moved on a loftier plane these spread her fame she always made friends and advocates that way neither the high nor the low could come within the sound of her voice and the sight of her face and go out from her presence indifferent end of chapter five